Let's turn again to this uh, baffling book of Revelation, chapter 9. Some of you may remember the song of years ago, Bewitched, Bothered, and Bewildered. And I suspect some of you have that feeling about the book. When I was a boy growing up in Texas, we used to go to the uh, state fair every fall. That was the big thing to do in October and uh, ride the rides on the midway. But uh, there was one ride that I uh, studiously uh, avoided. It was called the hammer. There was a long... uh, (laughs) long arm with a cockpit on the end that revolved uh, in a clockwise fashion while the uh, arm went around an axis. And I never got on that thing because I knew it would make me sick. But one day, some of my friends uh, got me to ride the thing, and sure enough, it made me sick. And to this day, I can't even look at one of those things without getting a queasy feeling in the pit of my stomach. And I think perhaps that's the way some of you are feeling about the book of Revelation at this point. You uh, got into it one time, and and the wheels going around, and the... uh, seals and the trumpets and the bowls and your head was spinning by the time you got halfway through the book and you've determined that you're never going to get back in there again. Well, that's, uh, that's unfortunate because this is a book that uh, offers a promise of blessing, enrichment of life if we take it seriously. Now, we may not agree on the details. Uh, in reading through commentators, uh, I find that uh, it's difficult to find two commentators that agree and And uh, when we have our staff studies in this book, we on the staff don't always agree on the details. But that's all right, because the main issues are very, very clear. And it's uh, those uh, primary facts that we want to uh, want to understand. Now, as I understand the book, there are three sets of seven around which everything revolves. They are the uh, seven seals, the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, all of which terminate at the same point the uh, second coming of Christ. The uh, seals run their course, and the final seal opens, and the Lord comes back. And uh, the same thing is true of the uh, trumpets and the bowls. They conclude with the day of the Lord, this great day of judgment upon the earth, and the second coming of Jesus Christ, this uh, hoped-for, far-off event that uh, we all are are waiting for. The uh, seals, as I've said before, describe the general activities in human history that bring man to the end of himself. These are, this is a general overview of, uh, of history, the history of mankind, and uh, the things that teach us that man is not adequate for life. Things like war, drought, famine, and economic distress, uh, recessions, depressions, unexpected death and violence, and uh, the breakdown of the moral fiber of those institutions that we have long counted upon, our nation, uh, political institutions, our educational institutions, banks, families, so forth. Now, these are all described in the seals. And uh, these are forces at work in human history from the time of John on to the end, which will be intensified in this final seven years that precedes the second coming of Christ, this time that's described in the Old Testament as the period of Jacob's trouble, the Great Tribulation. Then you have the seven trumpets and the seven bowls, which I see as occurring in the 70th week. And uh, they describe in more detail the events of this week. Now, last week, Steve uh, took you through the first uh, four or five of these trumpets. And uh, Steve and I have a little different way of looking at uh, this material. But again, that's, that's all right. Uh, I, uh, I have tremendous respect for Steve and his... Uh, exegetical abilities, one of the best uh, Bible teachers I know. I just don't happen to agree with him on everything he says, but that's all right. He didn't agree with me either, so we get along great. But uh, I, I see in, in, in these trumpets specific historic events 
that again are designed to bring man to the end of himself, but uh, which are further amplified in the book of Revelation. For example, the first trumpet sounds, and, uh, a, um, and hail and fire fall upon the land. In the book of Revelation, I see the land as symbolizing Israel. That seems to be a consistent use of that symbol. So the first trumpet for me describes a great uh, bloodbath, a massacre of one-third of the nation of Israel. Later described in the book of Revelation as blood flowing to the height of a horse's uh, bridle for a hundred stadia. That is the length of the land of, of Palestine. A great wave of anti-Semitism that will result in, in almost the annihilation of the Jewish race were it not for God's grace. He brings this thing to a stop before uh, that those people are destroyed. The second trumpet is a mountain, uh, introduces a mountain which falls into the sea. The flaming mountain, I think, is a description of Jerusalem, Mount Zion, and the sea is a description of the Gentile nations. Again, throughout uh, the book of Revelation, uh, Gentiles are symbolized as the sea, a great uh, teeming mass of humanity into which this mountain uh, falls and, and creates chaos. And I think uh, what the second trumpet is describing uh, is the event in Jerusalem when the man of sin erects the, uh, the statue there, the abomination that desolates the temple, and creates chaos throughout the whole world. He casts the whole world uh, into warfare. The uh, third trumpet described for us uh, in chapter 8 is a great star which falls into the waters and makes them bitter. And I see that as a description of the political leader who arises in the West who does a political double-cross. He, uh, he sets up, a, he makes a treaty with uh, Israel to guarantee their right to live in the land unharassed. And uh, in the middle of the week, three and a half years before our Lord comes back, he reverses that policy and as a result embitters the, uh, the whole world. And then in, chapter, in verse 12 of, of chapter 8, I left my reading glasses at home and I can just barely make it out. The uh, fourth angel sounds and uh, a third of the sun and the moon and a third of the stars are smitten. And I take this to be a description of the breakdown of law and order within the ruling bodies of that time. Uh, the sun and moon and stars in the, uh, in the book of Revelation and in fact in all of apocalyptic literature uh, symbolizes ruling bodies, human government. And uh, I see this as a breakdown of the capacity of government to restrain the evil of man. Uh, even the most godless governments today, atheistic uh, governments, uh, in some measure restrain evil and maintain law and order and justice. And apparently at this time the, there will be a breakdown of the moral fiber of the world. The whole world will go mad, just as Nazi Germany did in, in the 30s. And uh, men will be unrestrained, able to do as, as they please. And then in verse 13... Uh, John hears an angel, or pardon me, he, he sees an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell upon the earth. And the, the last three trumpets then are woes which fall upon those who dwell upon the earth. Eagles are, in, in apocalyptic literature, harbingers of bad news. And here they announce the woes that will fall upon those who dwell upon the earth, symbolized in the last three uh, trumpets. Those who dwell upon the earth, remember, are a moral class of people who don't give God the time of day. They're people who uh, live for themselves and go on in their materialism and, and blind greed and think only of this life and what this life can bring and in amassing power and, 
and prestige and influence here and now, and they really have made no room in their life for God. Uh, they're not merely people who live on the earth. They're people who dwell there. They have their roots down into the world. And uh, as we've seen before, it's God's way to bring judgment upon people who, who, are, who do not value spiritual things in order to redeem them. Judgment is always redemptive. God is not merely uh, uh, losing his temper in this final period and lashing out in anger at those who won't respond. He's reaching out in, in love. But uh, the only way he can do it, the only way he can get their attention is to unleash these forces upon the earth that will bring man to the end of himself. Now, for myself, I don't see uh, here that God is creating uh, unusual animals and setting them loose on the earth. What he's doing is taking his hands off of man and letting, letting man ruin man, letting him harm his fellow man. The forces that have been at work in human history from the very beginning are unleashed. God takes off the restraints. And man's inhumanity to man is felt on a, on a widespread scale, a worldwide scale. And it's this that's depicted in these, in these woes. Now, uh, as Steve pointed out in chapter 9, when the fifth angel sounds, a star falls from heaven. Uh, which fell to the earth, and the key of the bottomless pit was given to him. And as you know, uh, this uh, pit is the place where demons were, were uh, kept. Uh, this is the place to which Jesus banished the demons that he cast out of the, uh, the swine at uh, Gadara. He cast them into the abyss. And here a key is given to some individual who opens up the pit, and smoke comes out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened by the smoke of the pit. Now, some have thought that that is uh, a prediction of smog, but uh, that's not what it is. It's a, it's, it's a symbol of the demonic oppression that will follow the great lie that is foisted upon the whole earth. This star, I take to be the second beast of Revelation 13, the great religious leader who, comes, who probably comes out of Israel, an apostate a Jewish religious leader, who uh, becomes the head of the worldwide religion of this uh, last period of time and uh, who propagandizes the whole world to believe the lie. As you know, there are two personalities uh, in the 70th week, and it's important to uh, know who they are and to understand how they fit into the structure of the book. They're described in more detail in Revelation 13. John sees a series of visions, then the angel says, you've got to go back and prophesy again. And uh, in chapter 13, he gives us more uh, information about these two individuals. There are two men. One is a political leader who comes out of the West. He rises out of the sea, out of the Gentile nations. And uh, he, by putting down three other political leaders, emerges as the leader of a Western coalition, a revived Roman Empire, which I believe to be Western civilization, which would be uh, mainland Europe, England, and it would include the United States because we are very much Roman, and let's don't ever forget it. Our educational system, uh, our judicial system, our language, practically everything we do and, and are is based upon, upon Roman thinking. We are a part of the Roman Empire and uh, very much a part of Western civilization. And apparently uh, we, and I, this is a shot in the dark, I'm not sure, but it seems to me that the United States will somehow be involved in this coalition of ten nations, a Western bloc, 
which will be headed by this, uh, this political leader that is referred to often as the man of lawlessness or the Antichrist. And in cahoots with him, aligned with him, is a religious leader, a prophet, false prophet, who comes out of the East. He comes out of Israel, apparently, uh, or one of the Middle Eastern countries. And uh, he aligns himself with the political leader and causes the whole world to worship the man, the man of sin, the man of lawlessness. And you have to realize that from the very beginning of history, there have really only been two philosophies of life. Uh, God has called upon us to trust Him and believe in Him, count on Him, hope in Him. That's one philosophy of life. But uh, from the time of the fall, uh, Satan has been promoting his philosophy, which is believe in man, count on man, trust in man and what he does. Now, the, the uh, approach that God has taken to human life is to... Uh, impel and encourage us to believe in the man Jesus Christ. He's the man. But uh, the philosophy that Satan has taken is to believe in general in man, and the time is coming when the man will emerge who is the substitute or counterfeit Christ, and the prophet will attempt to get the whole world to follow after this man, the one who's called the man of lawlessness. Now, I think this is what's described in chapter 9, and it's his teaching, the teaching of the lie that uh, creates such widespread uh, chaos and torment, mental anguish, as uh, the moral fiber of the world breaks down. Now, if you want some further uh, background, turn to uh, 2 Thessalonians 2, where Paul describes uh, the first beast from Revelation 13. Uh, he is described, I believe, in the third trumpet. The fifth trumpet describes the... Uh, the false prophet. But here in Second Thessalonians, you have the political leader, the man of lawlessness, the leader of the, of the Western bloc. Uh, just a note about the issue that Paul is facing here in Second Thessalonians. The people in Thessalonica believed that they were in the day of, of the Lord. Uh, they thought they were in the last few uh, months of the time of Jacob's trouble which immediately preceded the coming of the Lord. They thought they were in the tribulation. And so Paul writes to correct their thinking. It's true that life was tough for them. They were being persecuted. It was difficult. But he says, you are not, this is not the day of the Lord. You're not in that period of time. And in verse 3, he says, let no one in any way deceive you for it, that is the day of the Lord, this time of judgment on the world, will not come unless the apostasy comes first. This is the great turning away from truth that Jesus describes in Matthew 24 when there will be many false prophets and false teachers and many will be deceived. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. This man who, as he describes, takes his seat in the temple and displays himself as God. He says in verse 5, Don't you remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he may be revealed? For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. The, uh, Paul refers here to the mystery of lawlessness. And uh, in the New Testament, a mystery is a secret which we would not know if God uh, didn't reveal it. The uh, term is based, it comes from the mystery religions of Paul's time, which were sort of like uh, some of the secret societies that um, we get involved in today. Unless you're initiated into it and learn the secret handshake and, 
and uh, the password and whatnot. You can't know the mysteries, the secrets. Well, that's the way the mystery religions were. And Paul picks up that, uh, that term and uh, applies it to Revelation. And he says, uh, we would never know these things if God didn't reveal uh, the truth to us. And the truth that's being revealed is the mystery or the secret of lawlessness. That is the source of lawlessness, the root of it. Where does it come from? That's something that would never be known apart from Revelation. Uh, it doesn't come from man's conditions, as bad as the ghetto may be. And as much as that may contribute to the lawlessness of man, that's not the basic problem. It's not poverty. Uh, it's not uh, too much government, as bad as that may be. Uh, it's not a uh, lack of education, as, uh, as bad as that may be. The real problem is that underneath it all, there is an evil, malignant uh, enemy that is out to destroy mankind. It's Satan. That's the secret of lawlessness. That's what's wrong with the world. That's why it's so hard to heal marriages and relationships and get people to perform as they should, even when they know what's right. What's wrong with the world is that behind everything is a malicious, uh, created being, an angel, that's out to blight and ruin and destroy the quality of, of human life. And Paul says he's at work now, but he's being restrained. But in this time, in this last seven-year period, the Spirit of God will take his hands off of things and just let man have his way. And he'll ruin everything. He'll destroy and and blight, and mar, and, and this will all be centered around this man that's called the man of lawlessness. And then in verse 8, we're told that once God takes his restraining hand off of the human race, that lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan. See, that's the mystery of lawlessness. Satan is behind all of this. With all power and signs and false wonders, and with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. In other words, they don't, uh, they don't test his message by the truth of the apostles, by the word of God in order that all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. Now, this is the great deceit, the great delusion that falls upon the human race because God simply lets man have his way. And uh, this man of lawlessness is presented as the man for the hour. He's the man for the season. And uh, the uh, false prophet touts him as uh, the Messiah of the Jews and uh, the one that everyone should, uh, should worship. Because man, after all, is the measure of all things. He is the embodiment of the humanism that's pervaded the human race from the very beginning of, of history. That's the lie. You know, Satan doesn't care if you're a Marxist or a, a drunk or a wife beater or a drug pusher. He doesn't have to go that far. All he has to do is get you to believe the lie. Believe in man. That what matters is what man is and what man does. And we played right into his hands. That's the great delusion. And that's what causes all the distress in the world. The idea that man is king. That man is what matters. Oh yeah, man gets himself into some frightful messes, but man will get himself out. 
Yesterday afternoon, I sat down and thumbed through some magazines that I have in my living room, and uh, just looking at it from the standpoint of the lie, and I came to some rather startling conclusions. You want to know how to be happy? Well, buy a Toyota. And a pretty girl will come sit down next to you in the passenger seat, and you'll be happy forever after. Or buy toilet paper with pink flowers on it and put it in your bathroom, and your husband will love you. He will come into the bathroom, and he will hug you. And he'll think you're neat, and you'll have a happy marriage for the rest of your life. Or go to Harvard or Stanford and get an MBA, and you too can graduate with a starting salary of $53,000 a year and be happy for the rest of your life. Now, that's the lie. That's all it is. It's a big lie. Now, those things in and of themselves may not be running. Nothing wrong with buying a Toyota. If there are any Toyota salesmen here, I apologize, but... You know, that's not the issue. If we really think that that's what's going to give us peace and satisfaction and make us men and women, we believe the lie. And that's all this man has to do. is convince the world that man is the measure of all things, that man is what matters. And the whole world will follow him. And the whole world will go mad. They'll believe the lie. And I think that's what this fifth trumpet describes, the horror and the awfulness of life. When everything that matters begins to break down, it's described here as a locust invasion, locusts like scorpions, locusts because it's so devastating. It just sweeps everything in its path. And a scorpion, because a scorpion's sting is so painful, it hurts. I had a friend who uh, several years ago was in the Far East, and he woke up in the middle of the night, heard something scuttling around in his room, and uh, got out his pen light, shined it on the wall, and there was an enormous scorpion about six inches long. And uh, he got his shoe out and threw it at the thing, and it knocked it off the wall, and it fell on the floor, and he backed it into a corner, and it reared up on its front legs and stuck its stinger up over the top of its head. And he threw another shoe at it and, and uh, missed it, and it ran through a little hole in the wall and down underneath the hut that he was living in. And uh, that was the end of his night's sleep. And uh, the next morning... He asked his host, uh, what would happen if that thing had stung me? And he said, well, you wouldn't die. So they, they won't kill you unless you have a, have a bad heart. But uh, he said, you would be in absolute torment for 24 hours. And I think that's what, what's being referred to here symbolically, the awful mental anguish that will descend upon the whole world because they believe the lie. The picture here is... Uh, organized as an army. It's, like, it's an organized pro propaganda campaign. They have faces like men because it's promulgated through men. They have long hair because it's seductive and, and alluring. The breastplate symbolizes the, their seeming invincibility. Everywhere they go, people believe the lie. And the awfulness that's described here is what, what results as men go that route. And then, in verse 12... <laughs> We're told the first woe is past. Behold, two woes are still coming after these things. As J.B. Phillips puts it, the first disaster is past. Behold, I see two more approaching. The sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. One saying to the sixth angel who had that trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. 
And the four angels who had been prepared for the hour and the day and the month and the year were released so that they might kill a third of mankind. And the number of the armies of the horsemen was 200 million. I heard the number of them. And this is how I saw in the vision the horses and those who sat, uh, sat on them. The riders had breastplates the color of fire and hyacinth and brimstone. And the heads of the horses were like the heads of lions. And out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. A third of mankind was killed by these three plagues, by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone which proceeded out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouth and in their tails. For their tails are like serpents and have heads, and with them they do harm. The sixth angel blows a blast on his trumpet. And he hears a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. And as Steve pointed out last week, this is the altar of incense, which stood in the, in the tabernacle and later in the temple, which symbolizes the prayers of, of God's people. And I think that what happens is, is this, that as the Western world goes mad, God's people will begin to pray. And in response to their prayers, this great army from the east will invade. You have two factors in this uh, chapter, the great delusion in the West and the great army from the East. An army is described as coming across the Euphrates. Uh, there are four angels, he says, who are bound there. Apparently they're bad angels, evil angels, and uh, now they're released to permit this great horde to, to uh, cross from East to West. The uh, Euphrates, that uh, great uh, body of water that runs through Syria and Iraq has always been the traditional boundary between east and west. It's the western boundary of the Orient. Even today it is. And uh, this uh, army marches across the Euphrates. As, uh, Matthew, or as uh, Revelation 16 tells us, the Euphrates dries up and uh, this army uh, makes its appearance uh, in the land of, of Palestine or at least driving toward uh, the land of Palestine. Their number is described here as 200 million. Uh, literally, the text merely says twice myriads times myriads. Uh, in other words, a large, indeterminate uh, number. Just a vast horde that pour across the Euphrates from the east. Now, it's interesting to speculate who this uh, might be. I'm, I'm sure there's no question in your own mind today. Uh, the, uh, the two great powers, uh, or two or three great powers in the Orient today... Uh, would be represented by China, perhaps India. It was a surprise to me to discover this past week that India today has the third largest army in the world. They have close to a million in a standing army. And China, as you, as you well know, has an enormous army, some three and a half million under arms right now, and according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, close to 200 million uh, in reserves, including about 75 million women. So that uh, between uh, China and India, uh, you, could, you could well... Uh, amass an army of this, of this size. As Napoleon put it years ago, China is a sleeping giant, and woe be to the nation that stirs her. Uh, since the uh, normalization of, of relationships with China in the 70s, they have acquired a, an enormous thirst for oil, and it may well be, I, I'm simply speculating, I don't know what the, uh, the uh, uh, scenario may be, but it may well be that their desire for oil will drive them across the east. That's the surface reason. But uh, we can see under the surface that it's the angels who are released uh, and permit them to pass. And they make a dive down into the oil-rich uh, countries of the Middle East. 
uh, Russia to the north is brought into the battle. And I think that would be the event that's described in Ezekiel 38 and 39 when uh, the great battle of Gog and Magog, Magog being the people, Gog the ruler, takes place. And this apparently also draws the western bloc into conflict and they join forces in the uh, Valley of Megiddo and the uh, Battle of Armageddon takes place there. If you want to see a parallel passage, it's in uh, Revelation 16. And uh, it might be good to uh, read that passage. Chapter 16, verse 12. And the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river. It's my belief that the bowls are in parallel with the uh, trumpets. And they, like the trumpets, describe the events of uh, this 70th week of Daniel. The sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings, plural, from the east. A, perhaps if this occurs in the near future, a uh, Sino-Indian pact, which might include Japan or, or some other people in the Orient. It's difficult to know at this point. And uh, their way is prepared. And then in verse 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, that's Satan, and out of the mouth of the beast, the first beast, the political leader from the West, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, the second beast in Revelation 13, the religious leader, three unclean spirits like frogs, demon, uh, doctrines of demons, as Paul would put it, teaching that's sourced again in the doctrine, of, in the demonic, hellish idea that man is king, that man is all that matters. And they're described in 14 as spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of the great day of God the Almighty. And in verse 16, they gather them together to the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Mageddon. That is the tell or the hill of Megiddo, uh, where the city of Megiddo stands today. And in that great uh, valley, described as the Valley of Jehoshaphat or the Valley of Megiddo, this final conflict will take place, which John uh, sees symbolically taking the lives of a third of humanity. It's a picture of the carnage of World War III, of the great nuclear holocaust that will sweep across the uh, Middle East, and the entire world will be drawn into this, this conflict, and the bloodshed shed will be unlike anything the world has ever seen before. The whole thing is designed to point up the folly, the sheer stupidity of man. There's nothing like war to teach us how crazy we are. I will never forget that scene in Patton, in the movie Patton, where he was walking through a, uh, a battlefield with gutted tanks and the bodies of young men strewn all over the... Uh, the battlefield, and his words were, I love it. God help me. I love it. And uh, what flashed through my mind is the glamorization of war, which uh, all of us tend to uh, subscribe to until you think it through, that the horrible loss of life. And in this particular uh, instance here, nuclear uh, warfare unleashed on the, on the world to a degree never before experienced, where a third of mankind is obliterated. And uh, in verses 17 and following, there is a description of this cavalry that comes across from the east. The riders have breastplates the color of fire and hyacinth and brimstone that is uh, red and blue-gray and yellow. The word brimstone is our word sulfur. 
And the heads of the horses are like the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. In uh, ancient warfare, the riders were the ones that carried the weapons, but in this scene, it's the uh, vehicles that carry the weapons, and this may well be a description of, of the vehicles of, of warfare, of nuclear warfare, that uh, create this holocaust. And a third of mankind, he says, was killed by these three plagues. And yet, in verses 20 and 21, men do not repent. Isn't that striking? God uh, lets man have his way. And again, I, I don't see special creatures being created to torment man. I simply see man cr tormenting man. God just takes his hands off of us and lets us play with our tools of destruction and play with one another's minds and just destroy ourselves. What God is trying to do is get us to see ourselves as we really are and how empty and hollow we are apart from God. And the best way to do us is let us reap the whirlwind, reap what we sow. But you'll notice in 20 and 21... They don't respond. Here a third of mankind is wiped out. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons. And the idols of gold and of silver and of brass and stone and wood and plastic, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. And they did not repent of their murders nor of their sorceries nor of their immorality nor of their thefts. How can we be so hard, so obdurate? What, what is it that makes us so resistant to judgment? Well, he tells us here. We love the works of our hands. We love what man is and what man does. And you and I have seen men make, make ruin of their health and their families and their businesses and leave behind a trail of destruction and debris and they still will not turn to God. Because, you see, it's not judgment that creates a climate for repentance. Judgment simply gets people's attention. It brings them up short. It makes them realize the, the uh, folly of their, of their way, of their life. What brings men to repentance is grace. It's the goodness of God, Paul says, that draws men to salvation. It's the Lord lifted up on a cross that draws men to Himself. It's the sight of, of suffering love that breaks our heart, softens the, the, the lack of response in our hearts. When we see that He's a Savior who cannot be driven away, who relentlessly pursues us, no matter where we go or how far we try to run away from God, when we see the revelation of the heart of God, who spared not His only Son, but offered Him up for us all. When we see the Lord who came here among us, shared our blood, sweat, and tears, and then bore in His own body on the cross our sins. When we see that He bore the just judgment of God that should have fallen upon us. When we, we see that He came not to condemn but to save. Then we cry out, Nay, nay, I yield, I yield, I can hold out no more. I sink by dying love compelled, and only 
conqueror. Let's pray. Father, how hard and stubborn we are. How much it takes to get our attention. How unwilling we are to stop trying. We thank you that you've revealed to us the foolishness of our hearts. The the arrogance of our thinking that we can be God. That we can rule over our health and our businesses and our destiny. And... uh, and do so without uh, fear of, uh, of loss or shame. How foolish of us. And we thank you for bringing into our lives those things that, that teach us how vulnerable we are. Sickness and unexpected death. And uh, the collapse of all those things that we hold dear. And those things that we think are substantial and stable. And bringing us to the point of our own personal bankruptcy and inadequacy. And we thank you that in that as we come to that place you reveal yourself as the one who was lifted up for our sins, who bore our rebellion, our foolishness in his body on the cross, who died to sin in order to spare us from that death, and now who lives to be in us all that we long for, all that we yearn to be. Lord, melt our hearts. Cause us to make you Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.